If you listen to the Van City podcast on a regular or even semi-regular basis, do us a favor and go to vancity.church/survey and fill out a very brief anonymous questionnaire. Thanks a lot. I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 58 of our series, The Gospel of Matthew. Life is a complicated mashup of certainty and uncertainty. We are bombarded daily by competing truth and authority claims. How do we navigate this reality as followers of Jesus? In one strange story, Jesus responds to a sticky question about taxes by telling Peter to go get money from a fish's mouth. How does money from a fish's mouth teach followers of Jesus about operating in a complicated life with certainty and uncertainty? We've been working our way through Matthew's first century biography of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, The last two weeks, we've been in chapter 17, and since Matthew is a story, uh, not just randomly gathering short vignettes of Jesus, the context of tonight's text is informed by what has previously come in the story. And we'll get to the context of tonight's story in just a minute, but first I have a confession to make. I think the truth is important. That's not the confession, actually. This is the confession. Uh, As I age, I think I'm going to have a hard time not being the guy that writes into the newspapers or emails the news sites from time to time to tell them how wrong they are. So a lot of news organizations have like a reader response section, and I'm afraid I'm going to find myself in one of those one day. Um, I was reading one of those reader response articles in the Oregonian a while ago, and uh, this person was responding to an article about the closing of a grocery store. And their response, their reasoning as to why they thought the grocery store was closing was because of millennials. because millennials were at fault, because every time they went into the grocery store, the young people, when this person would say thank you to them, the young people replied, no problem. And that like, made that person feel like a problem. So they're like, you alienated your customer base by saying no problem, and that's why the grocery store was closing. Airtight logic. But I think that uh, apart from Jesus' intervention, and I think he's been doing that over the past season or two, that's where my wiring would eventually lead me to. Down the road, decades, of course, from from now, uh, I hope. Uh, I I have a, a sort of problem. I hear or read something that I think is false, and there is an urge within me to go on a crusade to expose it as false and then present the truth in its place. And don't, don't get me wrong, it's not every single time, but it's often enough that I would say it's part of my wiring. Um, you know, this urge has even come up uh, in therapy, and it's not like the reason I go. I have bigger fish to fry, um, but it's definitely come up. And I think the main thing that has been holding me back from doing this all all these years is my lack of time. So when I'm in a season with some free time, you better watch out, Oregonian. I'm riding in. But uh, all joking aside, as followers of Jesus, aren't we supposed to speak truth to lies? Aren't we supposed to take stands, albeit humbly, on issues and controversies? How do we navigate competing truth claims? You know, the world is a broken place. Shouldn't we speak up whenever possible? And what if people misunderstand us and what we believe? Well, Jesus had to navigate similar questions. So look down with me at verse 22, and let's start reading in tonight's text. 
Matthew 17, starting in verse 22. When they came to, together in Galilee, he said, that is Jesus, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes, from their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. This uh, particular story in Matthew is, is a bit fascinating. It's somewhat well-known uh, because it's this miracle story, and, and it's strange. You know, uh, money from a fish's mouth, we get, like, the healing miracles that make sense to us, even multiplying, like, loaves and, and fish for big, large crowds, that makes sense, too. Even the water and the wine thing, you know, like, you got to keep the good times going, so, of course, but money from a fish's mouth... But as is often the case with this fascinating and sometimes bizarre collection of writings we call the scriptures, there's a lot more going on with this story than money in a fish's mouth. In fact, I think there's three layers to this story. One that's uh, fairly like, easily on the surface, uh, a second that's noticeable if we're paying some attention, and then a third that takes some understanding of Israel's history. So tonight, I want to go layer by layer through this story, and at the end, end of it, we'll see how these layers impact us. Sound good? Good. All right. Great. Let's do it. Okay. So the first layer to this story is Jesus as the master strategist. This story starts off with Jesus crushing his disciples' reality. Remember, he's just come back from a literal mountaintop experience. This was two weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 17. There's him glowing, Elijah and Moses show up, and God speaks audibly. Then last week, we saw that he came down the mountain, literally and figuratively, coming down from this, his mountaintop experience because he walks right into seeing his disciples' lack of faith. They are unable to exercise a demon terrorizing a young boy, so Jesus has to do it himself. And since Peter has declared Jesus as Messiah, and he did that back in chapter 16, Jesus began to warn his disciples of his impending death. You know, Peter tried to take Jesus to task for thinking that this would happen to his Messiah. You know, Peter had in mind the conquering general-type Messiah. And Jesus, in turn, rebuked Peter for doing so. There's no talking Jesus out of this. So after the mountaintop experience and the exorcism, it's as if Jesus has to make sure his disciples understand that things are still going to go badly. And to be fair, he does try to encourage them with something like, hey guys, it's going to get really bad, but it won't end bad. But the disciples only hear the part where, it's, where he says it's going to get bad. And so they were, they're uh, filled with grief. Or another way you could translate that is they were extremely distressed. They are tore up about what Jesus says is going to happen. It's really the first time we see the disciples reacting to Jesus' warning with a sort of realization that Jesus, as Messiah, may not turn out the way that they expected. And, and the story moves on. So he crushes their reality, and it moves on. They arrive back at 
Capernaum, their home base. The Passover festival is approaching, and they'll soon be heading out on the journey south towards Jerusalem. But before they do, a dilemma is presented. A tax collector approaches Peter and asks if Jesus pays the temple tax. Now, uh, give me two minutes to get into, like, first century tax law, um, and if you think that sounds really boring, try reading a bunch of commentaries about it. It's not my cup of tea. But there are some important things for us to know about this tax. So the temple tax was levied by the authorities overseeing the temple in Jerusalem and was used for its upkeep. So all Jewish males ages 20 to 50 living in Palestine were compelled to pay this tax. It was the equivalent of two days' wages. Many saw it as an act of patriotic duty. The temple was the center of the Jewish religion, but was also this magnificent work of architecture, one that had a certain level of fame throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. And so it seems pretty straightforward, but as is often the case with taxes, there was a lot of political and religious intrigue around it. The two Jewish political religious groups in power had opposing views about the tax. The Sadducees were against it, saying the justification for collecting it was illegitimate and that it was used for corrupt purposes. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were all for the tax and considered paying it an important sign of piety. Priests were exempt from the tax, and there was disagreement among, uh, among rabbis whether they should have to pay the tax as well. Okay, so the first century tax lesson is over. Uh, what this all means is that a simple question about whether Jesus pays the temple tax is rife with tension and controversy. And Peter answers in the affirmative confidently, one word in Greek, yes. You know, uh, of course, my rabbi is a patriotic Jewish man. Of course, he is pious and supports God's temple. Peter answers in one word, but the implications far outweigh the brevity of his answer. Peter runs into Jesus right after this, and whether Jesus overheard this exchange or recognized the tax collector and deduced what was going on, or the Holy Spirit gave him knowledge about what happened that he would not have had otherwise, we don't know. And, and it's uh, frankly, not a point, not the point of the story. Uh, however, Jesus knows about the conversation. He wants to teach Peter in light of this exchange. It's a pretty straightforward lesson. Kings don't collect taxes from their own children. They collect it from those outside their family. So the children are exempt. Jesus is implying that God owns the temple and that as his son, he is exempt from the temple tax. But more on this in a bit. Jesus doesn't want to cause offense, though, which is odd, because Jesus is often offensive, either like intentionally and in direct ways or also in like subtle ways. So he calls out the religious and political corruption to the faces of the elites, and he treats women with dignity and respect, and both of those things would have been offensive. But Jesus is really smart. He understands that taking a stand on the temple tax one way or another in a backwaters part of Israel may have caused some waves, but he's biding his time for a bigger stage, for the temple itself in Jerusalem. He wants to make a huge scene. And he does, you know, have his own position on this tax. It is corrupt. It is helping fund and legitimize a corrupt political religious entity that will demand that he, the rightful king, be crucified. Jesus is not naive. He'll make a bigger scene, and he'll be subsequently executed. It's the way it must be. But don't misunderstand Jesus. He isn't pretending to be patriotic and pious. 
he's not faking it. He's just not correcting the surrounding community's perception that he is, or at least not yet. And so we come to this miracle. The, uh, the strange thing that we see in this miracle, aside from money in a fish's mouth, is that Matthew never says Peter went out and did it. Scholars differ on why they think that is, but three broad camps have come to different conclusions. One camp thinks that Matthew just didn't record it, and Peter did as he was told, found the money, pretty straightforward stuff. Some scholars think that the point of the, of the story isn't the miracle itself, but Jesus' own poverty, so notice that he didn't have the money on hand to pay it. And since he wasn't a fan of the tax, he essentially sent Peter to do the equivalent of searching the couch cushions for loose change in order to pay it. And the last camp thinks the miracle never happened, not, not because it's impossible. Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, certainly has that sort of power, but because Jesus' point was to make a joke about their own lack of money and to you know, play on popular myths about finding treasure in fish's mouths. It's the old you know, money growing on a tree joke, except for the first century. And I think there's you know, good truth in each. Um, Although I personally lean towards uh, the second position, I I think there is something to God himself providing the tax. But I also think Jesus was probably, you know, searching the couch cushions, so to speak. And I also think, especially in in the wealthy West, we need to see that Jesus didn't have the money to pay the equivalent of two days' wages. Jesus understood bills and not having the money to pay them. And wherever you land on this miracle, we can appreciate Jesus navigating a difficult political, religious uh, landscape, you know, biding his time until a more effective stand can be taken. And I think N.T. Wright sums up this layer of the story well when he writes this. The point of the story, then, isn't that Jesus had the power to make a coin appear in the mouth of a fish, though that is certainly implied, nor is it that Jesus is simply a good citizen finding ways of paying the necessary taxes. The point is that he was a master strategist. Jesus is choosing when and where to stand his ground, to reveal his position on this tax, and to make a scene. He's patient and smart enough not to take the bait about the legitimacy of the tax right at this particular moment. He's a master strategist. But there's more to the story. Pulling back the first layer, we see Matthew's literary genius at work via Jesus' teaching. Jesus is shaping a messianic community for himself. And Matthew, writing decades later, would have called this messianic community the church. Matthew has arranged the teachings of Jesus in such a way from this story to to the end of chapter 18 uh, in order to address how a group of disciples of Jesus operate in relation to each other and the world. So remember, Matthew has a specific audience he is writing to. The biography of Jesus that he's writing is not written to us, but it is for us which means he was writing with intention, not just to pass along information like a history textbook, but to teach lessons. And what we can deduce from Matthew's original audience was that they were most likely predominantly Jewish, living within the Roman Empire, and that meant that they had to navigate a Roman society that was suspicious at best about them, regarding them as some strange Jewish cult. And then on the other hand, their old Jewish community, which would have been suspicious of their claims of Jesus being the Messiah, or outright hostile against it. And so many scholars see Matthew's phrase in verse 22 uh, when Matthew wrote, when they came together, 
as a literary marker for the church to understand that these next teachings are applicable to them as a church. And so what exactly was Matthew trying to teach them in this story? Remember Jesus' lesson to Peter. Kings don't collect taxes from their children, so the children are exempt. Jesus is implying that he is God's son, but the word children is plural. Matthew was wanting followers of Jesus to apply this to themselves as well. Through Jesus, they have been adopted into the royal family of God. And the reality of their adoption and ours into God's royal family is guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But there's a tension. While this is a true reality, the full realization of that reality is not yet here. There's a fancy word for that in theology called inaugurated eschatology, which simply means that the reality of God's kingdom is happening right now, right here, right at this moment, and yet it's not totally here. It's the now and not yetness of the kingdom. Jesus is the rightful king and the ultimate authority, but until he comes back to fully establish his kingdom, we have to navigate competing authority claims from governments and cultures, and we navigate this within the context of those around us who don't follow Jesus, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, much like the first century church Matthew was writing to. And how does Matthew expect us to do this? Verse 27 He wrote, but so that we may not cause offense. That word translated offense is from the Greek word scandalizo, which can also be translated a stumbling block and carries with it the connotations of stumbling somebody away from faith in Jesus. We are in God's royal family now, but like our master Jesus, we exercise this privilege and new position with wisdom and strategy. We don't need to go out of our way to demonstrate our special position by rubbing it in people's faces whenever we can and and thusly becoming stumbling blocks away from faith in Jesus. We need to often bide our time. And that doesn't mean avoidance. We need to be clear-headed about the injustices around us. But biding our time also doesn't mean that we're overly impressed with the authority structures of this world. We don't need to fake it. We give them their due but from the couch cushions. So, to summarize the second layer, we are called to navigate the issues and controversies and authority claims like Jesus did with strategy and wisdom. And then you peel back one more layer of the story and we see the symbolic weight of temple tax. The justification for the temple tax was grounded in this text in Exodus 30. Then Yahweh said to Moses, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay Yahweh a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Skip down to verse 15. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to Yahweh to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before Yahweh, making atonement for your lives. The act of atonement, whether through animal sacrifice or in this section paying a ransom, was the symbolic, a symbolic act of, of making restitution for the evil committed by people. 
The symbol acknowledged that their sin had created a relational alienation from Yahweh, and it it needed to be repaired. And and sin left a sort of moral and relational debt to pay, and so the atonement symbolically covered over the debt. This is the passage that, at least in the Pharisees' minds, uh, legitimized the temple tax. It was a tax that was supposed to point towards the need for atonement and ransom. And over time, as symbols often do, it took on different meanings and significance, and and it took on nationalistic and pietistic elements. But originally, the tax was symbolic of a ransom paid to God. Jesus, later in Matthew's biography, will flat out say, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, uh, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' tax payment is going to the very political religious elites that will have him executed by the Romans. But in so doing, he will become our ransom. He becomes our atoning sacrifice. He becomes the very thing the tax was symbolizing and pointing towards. And notice that Jesus uh, pays for his own and Peter's tax by means of the miracle. The same Peter who took Jesus to task for speaking of his coming death, the same Peter who, along with the other disciples, was greatly distressed at Jesus' reiteration of his impending execution, Peter was fighting against the very means by which God was going to deal with his sin and ours, the means by which God was going to undo the alienation sin has caused and to draw us close into his family. Jesus was what the temple tax pointed to and symbolized. Now, uh, great job, guys. Three layers of the text. You guys did it. Let's talk about what this all means for you and I. It's fascinating to me the cultural moment that uh, we live in. So the philosophical undergirding of the current Western culture is one in which we believe truth to not be objective, meaning truth is personal and decided upon by each individual. So there's no moral code of right and wrong that's applicable universally to everyone. So uh, now there exists like my truth and your truth. That's where that comes from. And at the same time, our society is radically polarized as people subscribe to different political, social, environmental, economic ideologies, and then demonize and dehumanize those that hold different views from their own. So it's my truth and your truth until you're on the wrong side of the aisle. Then you're a bigot, you're ignorant, and ultimately wrong completely contradictory ideas playing out at the same time in our culture. It's interesting. You have the grayness of what truth is, and then you have the black and whiteness of ideologies. Life is complicated. Reality is complicated. We as humans are even fairly complicated. I know know that from my wiring, uh, it's one that holds opposing ways of viewing the world in tension. So on the one hand, I can be very idealistic, meaning I have ideals about myself and the world around me that can drive me to reach those ideals, you know, much more black and white kind of thinking, if you couldn't tell by, you know, me wanting to write into newspapers. Um, This isn't a bad thing per se, but the brokenness of my wiring means that I can be and often have been uh, sinfully idealistic which just means that I can be judgmental and prideful and operating with arrogance and impatience. On the other hand, I am uh, often aware of the grayness or complicated nature of reality. 
I can often see many sides of an issue, you know, kind of play devil's advocate, so to speak, and can have my mind changed. Uh, but I can also be uh, paralyzed by uncertainty. Uh, so uh, an example of this would be when Hannah asks me for a glass of water, uh, guaranteed the first word out of my mouth will be, um, because I have to think about it. Like, okay, do I want a glass of water? Do I need a glass of water? How much water did I drink today? Wait, am I going to drink enough water that justifies me actually dirtying another cup? I don't know. What should I do? So obviously, it's something that I have to think about. And I know what you're thinking right now is like, wow, Hannah is one lucky lady. Uh, my point being in all of this is that life is, is a complicated mashup of certainty and uncertainty, black and white and also gray, both within ourselves and the world that we occupy. Jesus very much experienced how complicated life is, but the complicated nature of life doesn't have to mean uncertainty about everything. As followers of Jesus, we can take as a black and white reality the fact that we have been adopted into God's royal family, that the relational vandalism that my sin and your sin has caused between us and the Father has been atoned for and healed through Jesus. We are his children, and he is our Father, and in Jesus, there is absolutely nothing that can remove us from God's family and his love. But... This reality is not always a felt experience, meaning it doesn't always feel like God loves us. We may feel unworthy or feel that he's mad at us or terrified that his piercing gaze will reveal the awful muck that is in our hearts and in our minds. And questions arise in our minds. Does God really love me? Does God like me? Does he approve of me? And there can be a gray uncertainty to our relationship with the Father. And certainly, our sin can interrupt our felt intimacy with the Father. It's similar to other relationships we have. You know, when I wrong Hannah, there can be relational tension in the air until we talk it out, and I apologize, and when applicable, um, I right the wrong. But that tension doesn't mean we cease being husband and wife. And in a similar way, felt distance from the Father, whether caused by sin or some other factor, does absolutely nothing to change the fact that you are his child and that he loves you and highly values you. The sin you've done or that's been done to you does not define you in his eyes. And as followers of Jesus, we come back to this sort of black and white truth, choosing to trust uh, these truths as the truest reality. And then out of these truths, we, we operate in, in a complicated and, and in a gray world that does not often have simple answers. So much like Jesus having to navigate the payment of the temple tax to the corrupt authorities, we have to navigate the cultural expectations and authority claims carefully, uh, not faking it by pretending to ascribe to beliefs and practices that avoids controversy, but we are also not to unnecessarily stumble people. And that can lead us to being misunderstood. You know, maybe people assume that you're a nationalistic conservative Christian that votes Republican and blindly supports any and all military action. You must hate LGBT people, and you must hate immigrants. 
Or they look at you and assume since you're either young and or in a relatively progressive part of the country that you fall in line with the progressive ideals and that your faith in Jesus is just a social tradition, tradition that you keep in live as an outlet for social activism. That, you know, you, you tick all the ideological boxes of a good progressive who submits to the group think of our culture. And I think there's two temptations that we can easily fall into. The first is that we can be scared of people making wrong assumptions about us. We can go to great lengths to avoid being associated with the negative stereotypes of Christians. So when a, a coworker asks, what'd you do this weekend? You make no mention of spending a chunk of your Sunday at church, or if you do, uh, you try to make it so vague that they have no idea what you're talking about. You're like, oh, I hung out with a bunch of people. We listened to music and talked about life. And they're like, cool, okay. You do this because if I say, I went to church, you assume that they'll put you in, in the camp of an ignorant bigot who hates everyone who is different. And so when uh, it does come out that you follow Jesus, your first reaction is probably to say something along the lines of, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. I follow Jesus. I, I'm not like those other Christians. And I get it. Um, I work for a church, and <laughs> when I tell people my occupation, I usually get one of two uh, responses. Uh, the first is the amused chuckle and surprised look that seems to say, people like you still exist. Okay, yep, that happens. Or they're taken aback, like I just told them I practice witchcraft and offered to cast a spell over them. And actually, in some circles, that would be less strange than me working for a church. So I've come to kind of uh, make a rule for myself that I generally won't say anything about what I do for work unless a person, that person asks me. I'm not trying to be dishonest or anything like that, but because uh, for me to be proactively, uh, to proactively offer that information can make people really suspicious. It, it's like I like, transform into this door-to-door -door salesman trying to put on sophisticated strategies to trick them into becoming Christian. So, you know, every word, and say, every word I do and action I do, or every word I say and action I do must be scrutinized. But it's not a perfect rule. Uh, case in point, we had a family move in uh, near us into our neighborhood a little while ago, and I developed a pretty good like, neighborly rapport with the husband. He was like this ball of energy, like bordering on destructive chaos at times. Uh, but he and his family, you know, were, were kind enough, uh, really cool, and uh, yet they didn't know Jesus. And so uh, I was praying for them, and after praying uh, for them, I felt like the Spirit wanted me to be a peaceful presence in his life and to wait until an obvious opportunity came up to talk to him about Jesus. And usually that conversation about Jesus comes easiest when people ask me about my work. You know, I can pivot the conversation and be like, yeah, I work for a church. What do you believe? And then, you know, we go from there. But he didn't ask me what I did for work for months. Like, I got to know his story and stuff pretty well, got to meet his family and all of that. But it's like he couldn't slow down enough to ask me anything about myself. So, finally the day came. Out of the blue, as we were chatting, he said, dude, I never asked you what you do for work. And I thought to myself, ah, here it is. Jesus, I'm ready to talk to him about you. You know, just lead me. I'm open to your spirit. Let's do this thing. And so I said to him, oh, I work at a church. And he kind of looked amused and surprised and asked, you're a pastor or something? And I answered him in the affirmative. And he looked at me, still amused, and said, oh, that's cool, dude. I thought you worked at a weed shop because you're always so chill. 
I was like, oh my gosh. Well, I guess I was too peaceful of a presence or something like that. Uh, needless to say, I didn't talk to, uh, to him about Jesus that day. Um, but <laughs> the point being, I, I think we need to come to terms with the fact that we will, at times, be very misunderstood as followers of Jesus. But we shouldn't be surprised about it. Jesus was often misunderstood, and at times he didn't feel compelled to correct people's wrong assumptions about him. Jesus knew who he was. He was the Father's Son, living his life with a very specific purpose. And out of his identity, he was uh, better able to discern what truly were the things he needed to take a stand on, uh, and also the things that he could wait to address or bypass altogether. And I think that's true for you and I as well, becoming more solidified in our identities that are grounded in Jesus we can better say yes or not right now or no to the issues that life presents to us. But don't uh, misunderstand me. There is a difference between being strategic and just plain avoiding something difficult. Jesus was strategic with paying the temple tax in order to take a more effective stand against it. He didn't say to himself, this is too complicated. I'm just going to pay the tax so that I don't rock the boat. It was actually the opposite. He was essentially saying, I'm going to pay the tax so I can rock the boat in a way bigger way. Uh, Weird looks from people when I tell them that I work for a church aren't the most fun, although it can be amusing at times. Uh, But really, the strategic telling of my occupation usually gives me an opportunity to, uh, with the best of my abilities and with help from the Spirit, treat a person as Jesus would without the baggage of any of their assumptions about cultural Christianity treating them with dignity and value despite their brokenness and quirks, doing my best to love them and enjoy them. And and when asked, telling them that I work for a church and follow Jesus can very effectively undo many of their held assumptions of Christians. I've seen it happen. And it can also go sideways and they assume I work at a weed shop. I don't know which way it's going to go. The same Peter from this story, story urged followers of Jesus to do this in a letter. Live such good lives among the pagans or non-Christians that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify or uh, regard highly God on the day he visits us. So if one temptation we have is to navigate the baggage and misunderstandings of Christianity by avoiding association with it altogether, then another temptation right now in our culture is to shout out our beliefs for all to hear at all times. We are social creatures by nature. We want to share life with others. We want to be known. But here in the West, we are also hyper-individualistic, so our culture pushes us to derive our value from our uh, individualism, being, you know, like, true to ourselves. So while we want to be known by others, we also want to be true to ourselves, and that means we must share our opinions about whatever with other people. Those opinions are an outflow of our true selves, and to not share them would be hiding who we really are. Thusly, we are compelled to share them in order to be authentic. And social media has become the most common place where we communicate what we believe for all to see in order to be authentic and to be truly, like, quote-unquote, known by others. And this is often mostly to strangers or at least people who are not involved in our lives in any meaningful way. So 
Generally, whether a person is consciously doing it for this reason or not, what they are doing is what's referred to as virtue signaling. It's a practice of publicly communicating or demonstrating one's good character or moral correctness in order to be perceived as a virtuous and thusly valuable person. Simply put, the person wants people to see them as smart or witty or woke or whatever virtue they want to, to portray. So social media becomes this cacophony of voices desiring to be noticed and affirmed as valuable and, and virtuous by sharing their opinion about whatever is trending. But enter into the mix opposing opinions, and suddenly the way a person gains value through, through virtue signal, signaling comes under threat. Their very value as a human being is threatened because the rightness of their opinions and thusly their virtue is being challenged. So, opinions are screamed with, you know, what's the Twitter character limit now? 240? Who knows? Nobody wants to shout it out. 240, thank you. Thank you for being brave, Garrett. Appreciate it, man. You, uh, so, opinions are screamed out with 240 characters. Uh, Twitter mobs rise up and attack those perceived on the uh, opposing side. And the temptation for some of us is to join in with this process. You know, just post your opinion about how silly or, or dumb or naive or sad or wrong that person or those people are or that idea is. My point for those of, for those of you that are uh, tempted to engage in virtue signaling and being, you know, snarky or downright dehumanizing towards those who hold differing opinions is to take Jesus' words about being a stumbling block seriously. We don't need to share our opinion about every topic every time an opportunity arises to do so, especially on social media. Virtue signaling, though, is a universal thing. It's, it's not just like this 21st century social media thing. You might be thinking this is a bit of a like, niche thing to, to call out, being part of a Twitter mob or something. And some of you might not even have social media, but it, it's a very human temptation to derive our value from what other people think of us from the likes and follows you have on social media, to what outfits you wear, to what vacations you go on, to where you go out to eat, to what career path you've chosen, we can try to draw our value from how people perceive what we do. But ask yourself this question. What if nobody finds you remarkable or interesting in at least some way? What if nobody cares? Well, at the risk of sounding trite, that will never happen because your father value, values you more than any other human being could. You are his child. I'm reminded of my daughter Posey, who's uh, two, and yeah, she's learning how to talk. And uh, you know, as her dad, I, I get really impressed and proud of her and excited when she says six or seven word sentences with proper grammar. Uh, like, you know, the word order is right. She's using the, the proper pronouns, uh, all of that. It's just a delight for me to hear her learn and grow and talk. But to be honest, um, I am not impressed with any of you when you say a six or seven word sentence with proper grammar. It's not like I'm like, oh my gosh, you're so smart. How are you doing that? Uh, nor do I expect you to care about Posey's correct grammar. Uh, it's, it's a fairly mundane thing. But I'm her dad. I'm with her every day, watching her grow, trying to teach her and provide an, an example of good grammar, among other things. I'm thoroughly invested in her life. And so is your father. You may feel him 
and his love right now, or you may not, but he is there wanting to lead you, speaking over you, watching you grow. He has invested in your life a crazy amount. Jesus paid your ransom. That's quite an investment. We are freed up to navigate the issues and the controversies of life with wisdom and patience and strategy. You know, when our value is found in being part of God's royal family, then we don't need to draw value from posturing ourselves for all to see on the correct side of every issue. We don't need to make decisions in life based on if others will see us as valuable. That value is found through Jesus. So with all that in mind, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us and find more teachings and resources from Van City at vancity.church. You can help support Van City financially at vancity.church give.